Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Anna Codriarado. She's a productivity journalist, an author, and a podcaster. Productivity dysmorphia is the persistent feeling of dissatisfaction after working. No matter how much you've got done, it's the inability to see your own success, to acknowledge the volume of your own output, and it's everywhere. I wanted to ask Anna how we can deal with this very modern malady. Expect to learn why you can't hack creativity, how Anna deals with her workaholism, what the anti-work subreddit has got right, whether any social movement can avoid being co-opted by communists, the danger of admiring productivity gurus online, how to take pride in the work you've done, and much more. I feel like Anna's writing is hitting on something that a lot of people in the knowledge work world feel very acutely, which is this sort of pervasive, ambient sense that I could have done more and I probably should have done more and other people might be doing more and that makes me feel bad no matter how much I've actually done. So if you like what she talks about today, you should go and subscribe to her Substack because her writing is very, very good. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite, and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. But now, please welcome Anna Codriarado. Anna Codriarado, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. You were just telling me that you have de-optimized your week, the anti-productivity week. Yeah, I have. Uh, so normally I'm all for any productivity hack. Um, I'm signed up to Pomodoro techniqueing, bullet journaling, calendar blocking, making sure I've got a really solid morning routine. Um, but I thought as an experiment, I would see what, what would happen if I threw all of that out and basically did the opposite of what I would normally do and actively try to de-optimize my week. Um, and it's been super interesting because it's really shown to me the stuff that does really work and also the stuff that is kind of a waste of time. Um, and the biggest takeaway for me or the biggest surprise, the biggest thing I was not expecting to happen is 
I had so much more spontaneity in my week and so many things happened that I don't think would have ha- would, would have otherwise happened had I been just bumbling about doing my normal, very rigid stuff. Um, so for example, on Wednesday morning, I woke up and in the absence of normally going about my kind of set list of things that I do in the morning, I was like, oh, what should I do? And I thought, you know what, I've been really wanting to go to the, there's a new leisure center that's opened where I live and they do yoga classes. And I was like, you know what, I'm just, I'm going to go and try one. And there's a library right next door. So I'm going to work from the library, which is something that I never do. I just, I'm always in my home office. Um, So I went, went to the yoga class. Okay. The yoga class itself, not that great, but still, you know, it's good to move your body first thing in the morning. Um, But then in the library, I found a copy of my own book which I was just really not expecting because I live in a small town. Um, the library is really tiny and there it's mainly kind of just kids books, but they had a really small section on jobs and I think it was called jobs and business. And there I found my book on the shelf, which was just so joyful and something that just gave me this kind of boost that I didn't even know that I needed. And it's, it's honestly something I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had that it's, you know, one of those sort of small moments of enjoyment in my week that I just otherwise wouldn't have had because I normally am so rigid and so kind of must be focused on getting as much out of my day as possible. Um, so yeah, it was, it's been great. It's been really, really interesting. There's a tension between serendipity and productivity, right? The, the fact that we do try and control our days, we try and make them predictable, we try and find out, okay, what works? But this is the essence of productivity. I'm going to do a bunch of different things to try and get something out of my day. And over time, the things that seem to help me get more out of my day are things that I'm going to repeat to do. But as you said, you know, if you're time blocking, the, the, the opportunity for you to go to the new library, you go, well, I haven't been to a library and worked effectively before. Why am I going to go and try and do that now? And the same thing happens. I'm out here in New York. So my entire schedule is upside down. So for me, Everything that I do is brand new, and there's so many more opportunities for serendipity. I went to a, a sports bar last night to watch some basketball game, and this rapper that was sat next didn't know he was a rapper. This dude from Barcelona sat next to me that's a rapper, starts telling me about his tour. That's a cool story that I've got. So there is this tension, oddly, between sort of living life and, and having variable, high-intensity, enjoyable, serendipitous moments and drilling productivity and continuing to iterate on the stuff that you know works. A hundred percent. I was thinking about that just today and it's interesting you're describing it as serendipity and productivity. And I think that's totally true. But I think for me, what I've realized is somewhere along the line, I confused productivity with creativity and they are, they're not the same thing. And similarly, productivity is a thing that you can measure. It's quantifiable. It's about, as you say, being the most doing doing something in the most efficient or the the quickest way possible whereas more often than not with creativity you don't know how long something's going to take you don't there is no clear end destination um the way i've kind of been thinking about it is it's the difference between when you 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 know you you take a walk it's kind of how you you can take a walk in different ways so you can walk to the local post office in order to get your steps in for that day and then also run that errand and tick that off your list or 
you can just take a walk for no reason and just walk aimlessly around either a new area, you know, maybe you're visiting New York or wherever it might be, or just your own area and your own neighborhood and just take a walk for no reason and then come across some amazing discovery or kind of just and just have that enjoyment, just have that experience of exploration. Um, that's kind of how I've been thinking about the two. And it is a tension because at least for me, I am someone who I actually like order and I like planning and scheduling it. I enjoy putting things on my calendar. Um, but too much of it, as I have realized through this experiment does really hinder my creativity. Um, and equally, I don't think I could, you know, I think I'm, I'm a freelancer. So in theory, I could be a digital nomad and travel the world and, you know, have serendipitous moments every day. But I know myself and I know that I would feel very overwhelmed by that. Um, and actually, I used to live in New York and I, it was it was a very overwhelming city for me to be in. Um, that kind of constant not knowing of how long am I going to be here for or what's, you know, what chaos is this next day going to bring? It's too much. So there is something about there is a kind of Goldilocks element to both productivity and creativity of you don't, you know, we're, we're not robots. We can't there is a limit to how much we can optimize ourselves. And then for me, at least, my goal with productivity is is to enable my creativity. And so I think that's for me where this tension really plays up and where it comes in and just making sure, or at least what I've become really aware of at the moment is finding that balance where I'm getting the most out of those of the hacks that do work, but not kind of co-opting my ability to actually be creative. What were the hacks that your unproductive week told you were the most effective ones? So anything where I'm making a decision, batch, batching my decision making, I think works for me or, or also kind of just batch tasking. And so what I did is I, I kind of applied this, I de-optimized everything. So including the stuff outside of work. So not just the things I actually did in my working hours, but also outside. Okay. Here, so this is a, this is a kind of a dumb example, but one that for me really kind of came up. Um, I started putting courgettes or as Americans call them zucchinis in my porridge in the morning. And, Why? uh, because it, I wanted to get more greens into my diet. In I porridge? actually also really, yeah. So you honestly, you can't taste it. I actually like courgette, so I'm fine with it. In but honestly, you yeah, you Anna, grate are you it. Okay? In. I am, and it is. <laughs> it's a great way to get more vitamins, and you Dear honestly Lord. can't taste it. Um. Uh. But anyway, so and like I said, I actually like the taste of courgette, so it's fine. But you cannot taste it anyway. So you've got to grate that in. Like I'm not chopping. You have to like grate it. So at some point, I realized. What is a lot more efficient is if at the beginning of the week, I just stick my courgette in the blender and like zap it up, put it in a um, Tupperware and then just put a couple of spoonfuls in every morning. This week, I was grating the stupid courgette every single morning. What happened? By the end of the week, there's na there's a half used courgette in the fridge that is, I'm, I, I was, I couldn't. This morning I looked at it and I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm not putting the courgette into the stupid porridge. Um, forget it. And it's also frustratingly a waste of a courgette because now that's going in, in the bin. Anyway, um, but I think also the decision, the decisions as well. So stuff like normally I would sit down at the beginning of the week and work out a meal plan for the rest of the week so that it doesn't come to the end of the day. And then my partner and I have that very frustrating conversation of what's for dinner tonight i don't know i need to think about it um all of that is ha all of that is done in one go um so those were things that really kind of stood out for me 
um, as things that actually do help. Um, and it's interesting because calendar blocking is something that I thought used to really work for me. But what I've come to realize is that it's just about having a, a very vague plan of action. So on the days where I was kind of just going from project to project and not, not without any direction, I found that quite stressful and quite overwhelming. Um, and I really did miss having just a skeleton list of things that, you know, in the morning I'm going to focus on this and in the afternoon I'm going to focus on that. But what I didn't miss is having between 11 and 1.30, I'm going to work on this very specific task. Um, so yeah, that was, that was really interesting for me. But yeah, like I said, it was the, um, I do think the dis decision fatigue, at least for me is very real. And if you can front load those decisions and just kind of deal with them in a batch, um, or, or anything, put the, or sort the courgette out in one go, anything that you can do in one go, that for me does really work. Yeah. That, that's been one of the biggest things that I've been able to stick to my, my ability to, I, I swim in these circles. I'm friends with Ali Abdal and we talk about the fact that I'm ridiculously inefficient, even though I know what I should be doing. But the things that I have managed to stick to that have stayed with me is batching. So uh, every day on a Wednesday is all of the podcasts need to be done, planning for the advertisers, blah, blah, blah. Um, once a week, I, I do my emails once a week. Things that will take sub 30 seconds will just get an email response immediately as and when they come through. All of the long things, scheduling in guests, dealing with whatever it is for work, stuff like that. I just do that on usually a Friday, Thursday or a Friday. Also, doing emails on a Friday is good because it means that you don't get a response until the Monday. So you don't end up having this constant back and forth. A lot of people say, oh, well, if you just schedule the email until when you finish your emails, then your replies will have come through after you've finished inbox zero. You go, well, yeah, but just do it at a time when no one else is working. And it's absolutely sweet. So um, yeah, batching batching's a, a big one. Going back to the creativity conversation, do you think then that creativity can be hacked at all? Absolutely not. Um... I I actually wrote about this a couple of years ago and the title is Creativity Can't Be Hacked um, because you you need you need that those messy and uncomfortable parts they have to exist I mean again I suppose kind of to take this back a step um, what do we mean when we say can creativity be hacked like are we talking about can we find a shortcut to do creativity faster? Can we avoid the discomfort that comes with creativity? Can we generate ideas can, you know, exponentially? Can we make more ideas in a shorter amount of time? If that's what we mean by hacking creativity, I think no, because I think that discomfort is a critical part of the creative process. Um, because I just think that's that's kind of how, how it just works. I sort of, when I'm writing something, so my, you know, my creativity is mainly around writing. And the way I think about it is I'm writing something and then I inevitably get to this point in the process where I've lost in all faith in the essay or the article or the book or whatever it might be. And just think that's it. This thing is, uh, I'm screwed. Like there's, this is all fallen apart. There's no way forward. And then somehow, and I don't even actually really know how I move something around I step back from it, stuff happens that I can't explain and suddenly it works and the thing has somehow magically come together. And the 
only way what I, what I liken it to is moving house. So whenever you move house, there will always come a point where you are sat on the floor, either in tears or crying, very nearly in weeping, crying, yeah. looking at all of your stuff and all of your boxes and thinking there is no way that that stuff is going to fit in those boxes also in time for the movers to come. Um, and then somehow you've turned around, you put a few things somewhere and done that Tetris with um, the packing and it's all packed and it's done. And that always happens. And you, you, there's no way I've never had a moving experience in the same way that I've never had a, a proper creative experience where that discomfort hasn't existed is just kind of a fact fact of it. Um, I do think there are things you can do to give yourself a better chance and um, improve your experience or increase the likelihood of creativity being able to happen. To sort of engender a creative atmosphere. Exactly. But I don't think you can shortcut your way out of the uncomfortable and messy parts of creativity. Do you think that uh, I would definitely say that this is the case, that when I try to hack my way through creativity, that it actually works adversarially to the creative process as well? I'm trying to come up with something. So if I try and uh, binaural beats and write, well, I'm going to list let, YouTube um, and episode titles is a good example of this. I need to come up with a compelling title that's going to tell people what this episode's about. And it's also going to have to be eye-catching, but it can't be too clickbaity, but it can't be whatever, whatever, right? So there's all these parameters running around. And if I was to say, right, okay, so I'm going to write the first thing that comes to mind, then I'm going to iterate on that 10 times, then I'm going to do whatever, whatever. No, just go for a walk and think about it and listen to some music or something and you'll come back and you end up having it. So in a weird way, creativity gets hacked with anti... It can be hacked, but it's the hacks that we think of as hacks usually are the opposite of the things that we do to get creativity. You know, yeah. just leave, listen to some music, go to the gym and think about whatever it is that you're doing. And also what I would add to that is it's never the same thing. So maybe you're trying to figure out the headline for your episode or whatever you might be doing and you went off and had a shower and it came to you in the shower. That doesn't mean that next time you're trying to come up with the episode title, if you take a shower, the answer is going to come to you in the shower. You yes. might need to do something else. And sometimes you might have to do 20 things until you finally work it out. And sometimes it, you know, it, that's the other part of it that hack kind of implies that there is this blueprint and that, if someone, if I either if I did it before, or if this thing worked for someone else, then it's going to work for me. Um, this piece that I wrote about it, uh, this piece uh, where I kind of explored this, in which I wrote about how I don't think it can be hacked, I um, I spoke to a bunch of people for it, and I heard from this one guy who was like, "Yeah, I read somewhere, probably on Reddit, that um, if if you have more blood to your head, you're more creative. So he hung he hung off the side of his sofa so that he the blood would rush to his head and all that happened is that he is that he got a headache. You know, there was kind of because it, you know, maybe someone lay down once with their head upside down and had the idea for the next greatest book. That doesn't mean it's going to necessarily work for you. And I do think that we do have this um, urge to if someone else has done this, particularly someone quote unquote successful has done something that if we too could just replicate what they did, then we'll be golden too. 
That's what everyone's trying to do, right? That's why that's why Ali Abdal's got two and a half million YouTube subs. You know, people look at his content and they go, oh, wow. If I watched his video about typing at 240 words per minute, I can type it. Maybe I will get closer toward doing that or Pomodoro technique or Atomic Habits or whatever it might be, right? This is what people are doing. They're trying to model off of other successful people who have managed to get the outcomes they want from a process which they've explained, which this person's now going to begin to try and do. But with creativity, it is so infuriatingly pedestrian and counter and kind of its own animal. And yeah, the harder that you push. That being said, I'm pretty creative. If I have a bad meditation session, it's almost mm. always because I've had a good creative session when I should have been thinking about my breath. And um, one of my friends, Johnny, very frequently has a notepad and pen next to where he meditates because that's how many ideas he has when he's meditating, which obviously isn't the purpose of the meditation. But mm. it, it sort of when it comes, it comes, I suppose. He also has, and this was a life hack that we featured a little while ago, um, have you seen waterproof paper and pencils? I've heard about them. I'm pretty sure I heard about them from Ali yeah, as well. So they're, yeah, they're love notes, they're called, or you can get them on Amazon. And they're meant for, I think, they're meant for leaving cute messages to your other half in the shower. And it's like a little notepad and you can tear them off and throw it away. And the pencils work. And it is pretty spectacular that you, this paper and this pencil writes and then it gets wet and nothing happens. Uh, but Johnny uses that because he he says that he has at least 50% of his ideas while he's showering. Um, so he's just got got that done. So okay, so if you can't hack creativity, what are the things? Let's say that you've got a day where you need to be as creative as possible. What are the sort of things that you're going to try and do to engender that environment? I think again, it really varies. It kind of varies on the how critical that creative the that need to be creative is. So as someone who whose job relies on ideas and being creative something that i try to separate out are the pro the creative projects that i'm doing for money and the ones that pay my bills and then the ones that i keep back and do for myself um and i think one of the things i do is just trying to find a bit of balance to have space to do both of those things um i mean i do sometimes i will sometimes sit and try to come up with ideas but what i what I tend to do is I also have a place just on my phone in, in the um, notes app um, where I'm constantly writing down kernels of ideas. And then I do sometimes do just development. Like I'll, I'll carve out a couple of hours and I'll go through this list. A lot of it is garbage um, and just take those ideas and actually try to develop them. And I'll kind of, I'll start by, um, Googling the idea, has anyone else writ written anything about this? Maybe poll people on Twitter, see if they've got anything interesting to say. Um, I do a lot of reading. So as a writer, for me, a big the other half of the writing process is reading. I will just go down so many rabbit holes and just read stuff. Um, sometimes also do that on YouTube as well and just watch, watch a bunch of YouTube videos. Um, I, I do find for me it is kind of if I'm actively trying to be creative, it is quite a doing process. Um, I will also just sit and this actually just happens a lot more infrequently than it should, but I will just sit and try to write something. Um, basically, I think what's really interesting is that sometimes 
something will have will have worked and we will just try to keep replicating it and it just it doesn't mm. um it, like we can't get there again um but yeah i don't know it's um it's so hard to pinpoint exactly what i'm doing because i only realize something has worked after it has after i've actually had the idea or after i've actually done something that has been had a, has actually kind of made has had a creative output if that makes sense definitely having a list each week is a really cool idea so the newsletter that i write each week i need to come up with three things that i've learned i learned tons of things but if i didn't ever look for them if i wasn't ever writing them down then it would be really really difficult and then it means that when it comes to writing the newsletter at the end of the week i've got 10 things to choose from that i could have as the body of it is this tweet and this article and this conversation i had with a friend and this story from whatever might have happened so yeah i think purposefully looking for um little inspirations of creativity because that, that's kind of how creativity is right creativity isn't a big process it's the genesis of the process the process is the work that you do after the creativity. You know, tons of books, almost all of the sort of popular science, uh, pop psych stuff is a, a, a core concept fleshed out into 80,000 words. So <clears throat> finding finding those little bits of inspiration, that's exactly what you're looking for. And I think spreading that across the week, just kind of grazing on little tidbits of creativity that seems to that, that definitely makes it easier for me it also means that your research period is going to be much more simple because it's okay i'm looking at this as opposed to looking for something and then looking at whatever it is so i think that's good um the the article that got me onto your work which i absolutely love and i wrote a, a newsletter about was productivity dysmorphia so can you take me through that yeah um so this is a term i made up to refer to when you can't see your own success, where there is a disconnect between feeling success, well, between being successful and feeling successful. So I have kind of felt this for quite a long time and it really manifested most recently, which is what finally spurred me to write this article when my first book came out. So my book came out, I became a published author, and yet I really struggled to identify as an author and also to accept that my book was real. I mean, obviously, I know it's real, but to accept that it was a real achievement. So people would say how proud I must be of myself. And I was but I couldn't, I was not feeling as enthusiastic and as proud as these people were kind of projecting onto me. And what that, all that was going on in my head was, yeah, but the book came out in lockdown, so I didn't get a proper book launch. And it's not, um, in a, it wasn't at the time, it wasn't in a bookshop because, well, because literally books were not being stocked in any bookshop. Um, and also it's nonfiction, it's not a novel. So that doesn't count. As I say these things, I realize how ridiculous it is. But these were the things that were going on in my head, just all of these things I was telling myself to diminish the achievement. And um, it's not the first time it's happened. It's happened before. The other time, the other big time that I remember it happening was um, I had a, um, I wrote a story for the New York Times and it made it onto its front page. Um, 
and and kind of as far as journalists go getting a front page byline byline on the in the new york times is kind of like it's really up there it's that that was always that that kind of achievement was something that i didn't even ever think would be possible i ha- didn't even have it on the list like book has always been on the list but that sort of thing wasn't even on the list because i just didn't think it was going to happen and same thing oh it doesn't count because it was a co byline there was another reporter's name on it and it wasn't supposed to be on the front page but some other story you know all of this stuff that i kind of just told myself to just diminish the achievement um and i um again do what i do as a journalist i ask other people if they've experienced this and then take it to academics and experts to see see their take on it when i tweeted out asking people if they've also have this disconnect of um, not being able to see their own achievements. I was absolutely inundated with replies. And really interestingly, from such a wide range of people, um, I've heard, you know, I heard from women, from men, from other authors, but also from sex workers, from people in all fields, in so many kind of across all industries. Okay, fine, fair enough. Of course, it's Twitter. So it's still, you know, take that um, with a grain of salt but was overwhelmed by how many people related to this. Um, and then, yeah, so then I went off and spoke to a bunch of experts. And the way I well, the way I sort of think about productivity dysmorphia is that productivity is the thing that spurs us to try and achieve something, but productivity dysmorphia robs us from our ability to savor the fruits of that achievement. Um, and I kind of found that it it sits somewhere between anxiety, burnout, and imposter syndrome. Um, it's not it's a bit of all of them, but not quite fully one of them. Uh, the the big the thing that people kind of came back and said first and foremost was, but this is just straight up imposter syndrome. And for me, the difference is why I don't think it's imposter syndrome is that whilst I really relate to imposter syndrome and have it in some aspects of my life at least as far as work is concerned, I don't have this fear of getting found out. I'm actually quite confident in my uh, my work abilities. Um, I know that I'm good at my job. I know that I'm a good reporter. I know that I'm a good writer. I don't have this fear. The kind of hallmark of imposter syndrome is getting found out to be fraudulent. Um, and I, I don't have that, at least not in a work context. Have it in other areas of my life, but not in a work context. Um, so that for me is why imposter syndrome never quite fully, it just didn't quite ring true for me. Um, and kind of same with burnout because yes, I've experienced burnout, but I've also had this thing happen to me when I've not been burned out. So um, that's kind of where I landed. And it's been really interesting. It's been um, loads of people seem to have taken interest in this term. Um, it's kind of taken on a life of its own. Um, but it's been really, it's been great to sort of, start having all these conversations and kind of connect with people and find out that they also experience this. The way that I see it, imposter syndrome is forward-looking. Productivity dysmorphia is backward-looking. So imposter syndrome, for the most part, it is the persistent lack of belief in your ability to get the work done, despite the fact that you have continued to get the work done and all of your, that's the retrospective. Productivity dysmorphia is in it by its very nature i have done some work but i i could have would have should have done more higher this is you 
you tarnish it and, and, and sort of downgrade any of the achievements. There's two elements to it that I think, I can't remember whether you went into this in the, in, in the article. What you've used as examples are large projects, which you have got to, and then something's happened, which has been great, uh, and you've downplayed the how much that should be celebrated or how much that resonates with you and how sort of virtuous you feel your like the, the line between your efforts and the outcomes that you got. I also think that there's another element of this, which is on a smaller scale and on a daily basis, which is simply, I did a lot of work today, but I should have done more. That's another element of it, which isn't quite the same, I don't think, because it's not necessarily about tarnishing the um, grandeur of the outcome. This one is more to do with um, lack of volume or feelings of, of um, inefficiency. So, for instance, th- I haven't been in an office for a very long time, uh, and I work from home, or sometimes I go out and work in coffee shops, but quite rarely. And um, you see your own inefficiencies from a front row seat. You see every time that cold turkey pops up and blocks you from accessing that website that you said that you weren't going to use or the YouTube rabbit hole that you go down that you promised yourself that you wouldn't have done or the lunch that you said was going to take 20 minutes and took 40. Or You see all of these things, right? And I, you think, oh, God, you know, I, I should be doing more. Ali Abdal would be doing more. And then I went into an office to go and record a podcast a year ago, something like that, and there were all of these people fucking sat around doing nothing i'm like oh shit i forgot just how inefficient people in an office actually are and that really was it reminded me look you you probably are still wildly inefficient and you probably do need to spend less time on youtube however it's the work that you've done to get yourself to this stage is really really good um, so yeah, did you look at, or, or do you see this sort of bifurcation that I'm talking about here? One being tarnishing large achievements, the other being uh, an inability to accept that you have done work today. Congratulations, Anna, pat yourself on the back. A hundred percent. I mean, part of what we're talking about here, and this is why I did mention that I do think anxiety plays a role in this, is because what we're talking about here is a feeling of not being good enough. Um, that, you know, I've not done enough, this achievement isn't big enough, or even if it is, I'm still going to diminish, diminish it. That's, that's a feel that is, that that's about these feelings of inadequacy basically. And they can happen on small and large scales. Um, as to the point about, um, people who work in offices, um, versus self-employed people, that rings really, really true for me because honestly, my whole productivity journey or this whole interest in productivity culture only came about after I started working for myself. And it came about because I realized how actually there were so many things I was doing when I worked in an office that just were not working, uh, that were just really inefficient or, I mean, I, I knew this at the time I always used to, I, I would stand on the subway platform in New York And I would think to myself, how dumb it is that we have evolved so far. And yet we have concluded that the best thing to do is for all of us to get up and go in the same direction every day with everyone else and then come back at the same time, going in the opposite direction with everyone else. Why can't we stagger, you know, the time that we need to be in the office? And I would mention this to people and they would say, well, that's just the way it is. And like, you know, what would be the alternative? And we had a pandemic and we saw what the alternative could be. But anyway, um, 
this whole journey really was very much triggered by me starting to work for myself. And I do think on a really basic level, it starts from the fact that I am now fundamentally paid for my output rather than my input. So when you work in an office, of course, of course, you have to actually do your job. And if you don't, eventually you will get fired. But there is a lot that you can get away with because you are being paid to have your bum on the seat. Whereas I am being paid to deliver something. My editors really don't care how and when I write you five the five minutes or five hours. Yeah, they don't care how long it takes. They don't care where I am. They don't care how I do it. They just want the article. When I worked in-house, when I had a full-time job, although I do hate that term because I do have a full-time job now, but when I had an office job, when I was employed for an employer, my bum had to be on the seat. And the first time I ever got in serious trouble at work was because I basically left work a few hours early on a Friday afternoon when there was because there was no work to be done because the company was going through a um a restructure and there was literally no work to be done and I got in so much trouble and I remember saying but there was nothing to be like there was you know there was nothing for me to do and I was told but you are paid to be here between the hours of whatever 9 and 6 um and I, things probably have evolved since then. This was. Well I'm, not, I'm not convinced that they will have evolved. I don't. I, I think that a big part of the way that office work works is that it's a signal to the rest of the crew that if you're suffering, I'm here suffering with you as well. So I've been a club promoter for a long time, and a big part of our job, I don't need to be on the front door of a nightclub. The boys that I have that work for me, the managers, they understand inside out how to run that front door. They understand how to run the front door, not as well as me, but that would be difficult, but they understand how to run it nearly as well as I do. So I don't need to be there. Why am I there? I'm there as a signal to the guy that manages the nightclub to say, me, dickhead promoter guy, I am here freezing my tits off on the front door of this nightclub at 1 a.m., in the middle of Newcastle's winter with you as well, because you're here. Big chunk of it is just signaling. And the same mm. thing goes for the people that are in the office. Well, maybe you finished your work early because you were more efficient or something like that. But we're a team here. There's some sort of tribal mentality. And if such and such is lagging and still has graph to do at Friday at 3 p.m., Anna, you still need to be in the office, despite the fact that you've completed yours, because we're a unit. <sighs> Yeah. And it sucks for that person who is just more efficient. Um, and you're actually, you're genuinely disincentivized from being mm. efficient. Yeah. If doing, exactly. if doing more work more intensely and more efficiently results in you just being given more work or having big lulls of time where you don't do work, because those are the only two things that are going to happen. You either sit about and do nothing after you've finished your work or you are given more work to do. And if you're not remunerated for that with either free time or more money, you're actively disincentivized from being productive. 100%. I mean, it just makes me think of that episode of Friends when Ross is unemployed because he screamed at his boss and Joey's teaching him how to be better at being unemployed and make stretching out a task, stretching out the tasks of the week 
over of the day over the week so he had only five things to do and he said that you do that over the course of the week you don't do that all of that on a monday morning um it was funny because that's how people that's how the office works uh but yeah that that has always been my experience you know i've i remember asking also to work from home one day a week to write because funnily enough it's a lot easier to write in quiet um and was told, no, you can't because there are other members of the team who can't be trusted to work from home. So rather than sort that problem out, it's easier to punish the person who we know is a good worker and we'll just figure out a way to do it. In the, a, in the, the optimizing for the worst common denominator, for the least yeah. effective. Yeah, I mean, you know, the remote work revolution was way, way, way overdue. I think, and you know, a lot of bad things came out of the pandemic, but that's one of the definite advantages. Talking about the problems of work, you did a big deep dive into the anti-work subreddit, didn't you? What's yeah. what is that for the people that aren't familiar with it? So, um, the anti-work subreddit is a it was the large it was the fastest growing Reddit from last year, and. Um, it's been around for a really long time, but really blew up during the pandemic. And it's basically a forum for people to talk about these pretty radical ideas of completely abolishing work. Um, and it really blew up because, um, particularly in America, there were there was kind of wave of people who were super frustrated with their working conditions, particularly in the service sectors. And uh, they texted their bosses to say that they quit. So they quit over text. And then they took screenshots of these texts and they put it on the anti-work uh, subreddit and those went viral and the whole thing, um, the whole thing blew up. And now it's got, I think it's pushing at 2 million subscribers. Um, what was really fascinating, so I spent a couple of months reporting on this. What was really fascinating is this idea of anti-work, as in anti-work as a kind of political or, or sort of political philosophy, I suppose, um, is it, it's not it kind of it's not new, but it's, it's not that old, but it's not new either. Um, and it has its roots in quite far left ideologies so marxism anarchism and even kind of you could really get in the weeds of it kind of like post anarchism and all of this kind of stuff um it's quite heavily tied to the idea of um there being no state so to kind of take this back a step when we say like abolish work we think well how on earth that's gonna how's that gonna work if we don't work how are we gonna make money the point is to think about what would a society that is not centered around money and not centered around us having to quote unquote earn a living and exchange our labor for money, what would that look like? So it's not about ending work within the current system that we know it, but it's kind of, I mean, really this is about dismantling the whole system of capitalism. Um, um, everything, that's everything. Everything, now. everything, any, everything. Any social yeah. movement sneaks Marxism or communism in through the back door. There's these people that thought that they this were just right leaving a job. Level. They just thought they were leaving a job and texting <laughs> yeah. their boss and said, telling him that they weren't going to come into work later on. And then three months later, Marxism. Yeah. And what's been really interesting is that there has been, so when I was reporting on the story and this has kind of got, I think it's got worse um, in the group since, and there's been there's actually been quite a lot of drama since I wrote the piece um, that I'm not actually fully up to date on. But um, so it's, 
like any big movement, particularly one that starts online and starts to starts to kind of um, move and spill into the real world, there's a lot of teething problems because it's really easy to say behind a computer screen, you know, let's dismantle capitalism and let's do this and do that. It's a lot harder to actually then turn that into actual action. Um, but so to your point, there was quite a split in the group. So there were the people, the kind of, let's call them sort of the um, the OG anti-work, kind of the um, long-time members who they're all about these kind of quite extreme lefty views. Um, and then there are the people who've moved in since the pandemic who basically realized, yeah, work sucks and I hate it um, and I need a place to vent about it. But fundamentally, I I want to improve work and I want to exist within the system, but I just want it to be better. Mm. Um, and and to me, that was what the really interesting tension is, because when you when you when you realize the system is broken or isn't working, what do you do? Do you find a way to exist within it? Or do you try to overturn it and change it? And I, I think that's something that um, so many of us kind of do feel that tension because um, it's really interesting. You know, uh, I've seen a lot of critique in general. There's kind of this trend in Internet writing at the moment of pointing out that there are people who have pointed to the failures of capitalism, but they themselves aren't doing enough to tear down the system. I don't, it's not possible for any one individual to tear down the system. I mean, what does that even actually look like in practice? Um, and I think so many of us are just thinking about, well, you know what? There are so many things that I don't like about this, but also I'm not sure that I see what the alternative would look like. I'm not sure that, you know, I'm not a Marxist. I'm not a cap. I'm not a anarchist. I'm not a whatever. I'm, you know, none of these labels quite seem to fit quite right. And none of the kind of ideology or the theory seem to look quite right either. Um, and so really, I mean, the actual heart of the original point of the forum was just to debate and talk. And then, then there became this pressure of now there are so many people and there's so much media interest. And suddenly it became this pressure of this, this group somehow, which is just a bunch of regular people talking on the internet is somehow now supposed to come up with all of the answers for everything that's wrong with our society. Um, so it's been really, really interesting and really, really kind of fascinating to watch it unfold. Um, and I just had some really great conversations with so many of the people who are members. Um, and then also kind of um, lots of academics as well, because there is sort of, there's a dotted line to another movement, which is called post-work, which is very much more in the academic space. And that is also deals in this idea of critiquing work as we know it and um, thinking about what what some alternatives might look like. Um, and to my mind, I just think, you know what, even if it's something like even if it's like, you know what, some of these ideas are a bit too radical for me or a bit too lefty or whatever it might be. There's still so much in there that is actually really, um, really worth engaging with. And to a large extent, this idea of work and how it doesn't work is actually something that cots right across the political spectrum because actually there are people who they, they, you know, might be on the complete opposite side of, um, uh, yeah, of the political scale who still also are sat in offices and really hating their jobs. Lots of people um, are disgruntled uh, with yeah. their work. It's not just a, a phenomenon from people on the left. Was, exactly. was getting exposed to this one of the reasons that you've decided to try and do less work this year? 
It definitely was uh, one of the contributing factors. Um, although I'm not, I'm also, uh, so I, I wrote, I wrote a piece recently about how my goal for this year is to, is to do less. And, um, I think there's also, I'm not the first person who's kind of come up with that idea either. Sort of since I've seen that piece, I've seen lots of other people also kind of express similar, similar feelings. And, um, a lot of people have kind of misunderstood what anti-work is about and people kind of think that it is more about just being fed up with work and they're sort of, they're not aware of these really radical roots. Um, but doing all of that work and kind of thinking about it and particularly reading some of the more, um, the more measured texts and speaking to some of the kind of really well-researched academics and realizing actually how deep this problem of work goes that definitely was a contributing factor but I mean there's obviously no way for me to AV test this but I think I probably would have landed there on my own anyway because you know I really believe that writers they write what they need to read it's kind of how you teach what you need to learn and there is a reason why I was attracted to that anti-work story and so whether or not I would have written it, um, I think I probably would have still landed in this place of just reevaluating my own relationship with my work, my productivity and my ambition and, and all of these things. Um, but it definitely, I guess it kind of gave me the permission to do it, sort of knowing that there are these sort of, there's this sprawling online community of people who are taking this even more seriously than I am. Um, that I think helped. There's a quote from one of your articles where you said, I've managed to unearth a series of contradictions in myself. Chief among them is that I'd very much like to work less than I currently do. And indeed, it's within my power to do so, but I still don't. And that tension, again, between the fact that... I, actually, something else here. I think that there's broadly two types of people that are really, really focused on productivity. One of them are the camp that I think both me and you fall into, which is we take pleasure from doing things well, doing things productively, doing things efficiently, getting work done. Um, we genuinely do. However, we also see that there's another element of life that we're probably missing out on, that we know that life would be better and that we are built for spending more time in nature, for spending more time away from our screens, for spending less time being worried about the next achievement, whatever it might be. The other side, are I would put Ali into this camp. I have a bunch of other buddies as well who don't, who don't really seem. Douglas Murray is a good example of this as a writer. Um, he simply won't stop, and he simply has no desire to stop either. The idea of a balanced life to him, it doesn't. It's not something that factors into his life. He sees his life as a balanced life, working all the time, and then picking up his his. Um, free elements his spare time wherever he can and i think that there's broadly two of those and i think that the tension as well with what you're talking about here only really applies to those of us that have a bit of a desire for something else outside of it because if all that you want to do is send it every single day sat in front of your desk then crack on um i've managed to unearth a series of contradictions chief among them is that i'd like to do less work than i currently do and indeed it's within my power but i still don't why do you think that contradiction's there? If I think I think if I knew why it was there, I would be able to uh, solve this problem and kind of be at peace with it. Well, can I can I give you a, a potential reason why I think it might be there? 
please do. Yeah, so I think that I think that you you obviously derive satisfaction from doing your work, and that you know the grind and iterating on the things that you do are going to continue to get you success. Changing that is a bad idea because you have found a successful solution. Letting go of that, I think, is just primarily the problem. I think that the difficulty comes from not doing something which you know brings you success. And I think it's the urgent will always get in the way of the important mm. in the same way as the, um, how would you say, the dopamine system will always overtake the serotonin system. You're always going to chase a goal ahead from finding peace and pleasure because you know that the goal is, it, it's, it feels more urgent. It feels mm. more immediate, or at least that's my explanation for why I feel that way. Yeah, I think that does make sense to me. I think that's definitely, if not all of it, a really big part of it. Because that's the thing is that, as you said, like I am someone who likes work. I like what I do. Um, you know, I I feel so blessed that I get to do stuff like this and call it my job. Um, and that for the large part, I don't really have to answer to anyone. Of course, you know, I've like, you know, I still have to be polite and I've got clients and I've got deadlines and I've got stuff, but I really am the kind of like master of my own destiny. And I, and I really do think I've got the greatest job in the world. Um, but then also I, I do know there is so much more to life than work. Um, and also there's this weird thing at the moment where it's suddenly really unfashionable to be, you know, hustling is not, is that it's, it's not fashionable at least not in the sort of circles that i'm swimming in um you know the girl boss is dead <laughs> um and all of this kind of stuff so there's there's that going on but then there's also you know this has really been amplified at least for me with the pandemic because during the pandemic there was nothing else to do i was not baking banana bread i was working on my book i was working because that is was something i enjoyed doing and pretty much the only thing i could do all competition um, for working had been removed yeah exactly um so it is it is a it's a it's a really tough one it's kind of almost it's almost like i sometimes have these conversations where i kind of i do think there are people who just view jobs as jobs just as paychecks um and they're not necessarily interested in careers they're just interested in exchanging their labor for money basically so they can do stuff outside of work um I'm I'm just not one of those people and sometimes I do have days where I wish I was where I could take my worst like work less seriously where I could care, where I could teach myself to care less about my work but I just can't um so yeah there's all of that kind of swilling around um I think it also for me what moving I so I've I've always been a journalist my whole career and I've written about lots of different things over the course of my career um and I'm in this space at the moment where I'm writing and thinking a lot about productivity and work and careers and stuff like that. And it does sometimes this kind of meta element of my job, I think also can makes this maybe sometimes a bit worse. It seeps into everything that you do. You know, if you're chilling out by reading Oliver Berkman's 4,000 Weeks, 
but then you've also got a podcast with him, but then you were also going to write an article on it. But then would I have read this book had I not been? Well, yeah, because yeah. it's a pretty good book. And then you start to go, well, hang on, hang on. Have I, have I managed to, have I got like Stockholm syndrome to my own job here? Exactly. I, where does the line between what I do for fun and what I do for work, where does that finish? Well, I get to do something that I love for, for work. Well, actually, how much would I love it if this wasn't my work? Just over and over again. You know what's really interesting as you say that it makes me think about so the last the jo- the actual the last time I had a um a, a, an in-house a staff job um I was a music journalist and covering the type of music that at the time I absolutely loved um I still have not recovered from how much that ruined my enjoyment of music um and I don't have that anymore, you know, you, you, you're, to your point, because I I read Oliver Burtman's book. I interviewed him for my podcast and um, I loved reading his book in my free time. I gifted that book to my dad. I've spoken about that at length with my friends, recommend it to people. It's a joy for me to talk about that. And it was had a positive impact on me reading that book. Um, I don't know what happened to the music, to the love of music, though, but having a job in that space destroyed that love for me and even now I don't really I don't listen to new music anymore um I'm just I live in I mean I listen to music I'm not a total freak um but I I kind of live in this bubble of I just prefer to listen to stuff I already know um I have no idea what's going on in those kind of spaces anymore again partly I've, I've said for ages that if there's one way to turn a love into a labor it's to commercialize it. Mm. As soon as you do what you do for fun, for work, the the game has changed. And that's a price that I think far more people need to pay. I, I need to realize that they're going to pay. I did this video a while ago about uh, 10 reasons why you shouldn't work for yourself. And it was all of the bad things about being self-employed. The fact that you're both the taskmaster, you're the, the organ grinder and the monkey. You never know when you're done. Holidays aren't holidays. You don't get sick pay. You can't get a, a house because you need three years of SA302s, blah, blah, blah. All of these things, right? All of this stuff that happens that comes through. And you can turn the thing that you think, well, if I did my passion for work, then my job would be the thing that I love. Yes, it would. But you are also going to turn your passion into a job. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that your job is going to be your passion. It's the other way around. And there will be times, inevitably, if you want to be good at the thing that you're going to do, you're going to have to work hard, which means that you're going to have to get your nose to the grindstone, stay up late, get up early, battle through creativity blocks and so on and so forth. And that removes a lot of the joy that you find. One of the reasons that you enjoy doing the things that you do is because they're easy and free and and liberating and they don't feel like they have the time pressure of whatever job it is you do at the moment. You start to change that and put the same dynamic that you're trying to escape over the thing that you now do to escape there's only one outcome from that. I also wonder about whether you do something, whether you turn that passion into a job and you do it for someone else or whether you do it for yourself. I totally hear you on the um, reasons not to be freelance. Um, I've written a whole book about freelancing. And if there is one piece of advice What's I could give called? people, it's called You're the Business. Um, it's this one right here, this lovely blue one. Um And if there's one piece of advice, when people ask me, should I go freelance? I say to them, are you being pushed into freelancing? Are you being pulled towards it? Because more often than not, people are being pushed into it because they don't like their current job situation. In which case, 
don't freelance, just get another job. Um, all of that being said, I do wonder if doing your passion, but for someone else also plays a role in it because I was a music journalist for, um, working on staff at a, um, a really intense publication where there were sort of impossible parameters and eventually that publication got shut down and I got made redundant and that's how I ended up freelancing which was the best thing that ever happened to my career but sucked at the time um and I think that had a role to play because it was still it was still the thing I loved but not on my own terms and I I think also to be honest I think it probably was relevant that it was a music industry and I think I saw a side to it that I was not expecting and was seeing it up, you know, seeing how the sausage is made is kind of a recipe for going vegetarian. Um, so that might've been a part of it as well. Um, but yeah, I think this kind of idea of find a job you love and you won't work a day in your life is one of the biggest lies that, uh, we have been told. Um, and this idea of, Oh, if you can just find your passion, um, your job won't be a job. It's, it's just bullshit. There's a quote from Tim Cook at an all-hands Apple meeting that he did, and he takes questions from the uh, staff. And someone had asked something to do with the same thing. They'd say, if you find something that you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Tim Cook thought about it for a moment, and he said, yeah, they people do say, if you do what you love, you will never work a day in your life. At Apple, I found that to not be true at all. said, you will work harder at this thing than you ever had before but the tools will feel light in your hands. And I'm like, that's cool. That's a cool way to put it. But you need to know that there's a price that you pay for this. This isn't going to be your passion anymore. This is going to be a business built around something that you cared about. And you don't know where that's going to go. It's an unfortunate red pill to drop on people, but you genuinely don't know if commercializing your passion is going to destroy your passion for it and not be a commercial success. That's genuinely a risk. You know um, what it's like? It's like you and that girl that you live next door to and you went to school with for ages and ages and you never went, she was in relationships and you were in relationships and you never went out. And you think, right, okay, if we decide to do this, we sacrifice the potential for our friendship for a relationship which isn't guaranteed to succeed. That's kind of how I see it. Yeah, it's so true. That's a, Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. Um, and that it kind of comes back to what we were saying at the very beginning that there's no blue there's no blueprint you're not going to know if something's going to work until you try it and just because it worked for someone doesn't mean that it's going to work for you just because there is there's a content creator out there or a youtuber or whoever or a writer who's turned their passion into their career and they've made it work and they talk about how brilliant it is that doesn't mean that that's going to be the same thing for you um, and I don't know, it's, it's tough. It's also, I think it comes back to how, at least when I was going through school and university, we weren't taught about thinking about careers in terms of how they fit into our lives. We were just taught you must get a job and the end goal is job, which back then was in an office. Um, and here is a menu of types of jobs you can do and you can do these stupid aptitude tests that always tell you that you're going to be a teacher. Um, and then they, you know, they roll in the like the lawyers and the accountants and all of these people in these professional fields to show you what the options are. Um, but they don't talk about, OK, if you want to be 
in the creative field, this is what your life might look like. Or if you're thinking about living a certain kind of life, how's your job going to fit into it? And all of these things, we just, we're not taught about that, even though we center our whole world, our whole society, our whole lives around work. When we're taught about careers, we're not taught about how they fit in, in relation to the rest of our life. Um, but I mean, I do feel somewhat optimistic that some of this stuff is starting to change. Um, and at least from my experience, you know, I'm being asked to come into universities and um, even kind of um, uh, like community um, centers and stuff like that to talk to young people about freelancing. And I, I never had those kinds of talks when I was um, when I was those young, though, that age. It was it was just like these are these rigid types of jobs that you're going to be able to do. Um, and I do think that young people are kind of thinking differently about this stuff. So um, I'm semi hopeful. One thing to consider, I'm aware that I put a bit of a damp squib on everyone's dreams of monetizing their passion. One other thing to consider is if you hate what you're doing at the moment, you're not, you're not giving anything up. Now, if you don't enjoy the relationship you're in, the place that you live, the job that you do, you're literally risking nothing. What's the worst that happens? You get into another job, you try and make a go of it, and you it fails, and then you go back into a job that you don't like. Do you mean like the one that you have now? At the very least, you've closed that open loop of constantly obsessing over whether or not that's going to be the thing. And then maybe you find out it was never the thing in the first place, and you can now think about, mm. start thinking about what the actual thing is going to be. Um, going back to the the um beyond work discussion that's beyond burger isn't it that's moving past me <laughs> anti-work <laughs> anti-work um going back to that how do you counteract your desire to constantly get things done with productivity given the fact that you like getting things done you take value in it but also you have this other th this vision of knowing that not everything you do should be in the service of work how do you know if you're working hard enough? How do you give yourself a break when you've finished working? How do you counteract this desire to constantly get stuff done? Well, so first of all, I want to say to kind of connect these two things that we've just been talking about is I think it's really important for people to be to realize and something that has been transformative for myself to kind of grapple with is that it is possible to to, to hold two conflicting thoughts in your head and for both of them to be true and that they can exist at the same time. And so, for example, it is possible to really like what you do and really like your job, but also know that maybe you work a bit too much and maybe it's time to kind of think about letting go of this obsession with work or productivity or whatever. Um, I wish I would have come up with this, but unfortunately I can't take credit for it. Um, there is an essay in the New York Times, which has got something, the headline is something something to the effect of you can be anti-work and have a dream job at the same time. Um, and I think that's very true. I think you can um, be really critical of the way we work, of our um, working environment, or even maybe go so far as the whole system, um, but also love your job. Uh, because that's kind of, that's kind of how I feel. Um, did you did, sorry did you hear there was a story about second wave feminism uh, and the women's separatist movement in the 70s do you know what this is no big group of women decided that the patriarchy was causing a lot of problems for them and the solution was to completely recount men so you had straight women becoming either uh, celibate or elected elective lesbians in a desperate attempt to try and sort of 
stick their middle finger up at the patriarchy. And it's kind of what you're talking about here, that the binary choice that people see with regards to work is, if I think that there are problems with the current system of work, I therefore either need to be unemployed or hate my job. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's so much more nuanced than that. It's possible to hold opposing views and then be true at the same time. And I think that actually, in answer to the actual question you asked me, that to me is a really key element of all of this, because once you can accept that and once you can, you know, validate your feelings, basically, um, things become a lot easier from there. So if you just remind yourself of those things, then when you do need to take a break, you kind of you can you can give yourself a break, basically. Um, I mean, th- for me, one of the I mean, this is obviously not practical for everyone to do. But for me, one of the big things is that I'm actually moved out of the city. So um, I used to live in London and um, I moved out and there's a so- slower pace of life around me. And slowly, slowly, that is filtering to me as well, it's got this kind of trickle down effect of when I live somewhere that's more chilled, I become more chilled. Um, I kind of also make this say this in a kind of joking way to people when they ask me about, you know, how to get better at having breaks when you're freelance. Um, I tell them to get a dog because the dog needs to, the dog needs a walk and the dog is going to force you to get out and the dog is going to force you into nature. And, um, just make you have a bit of division between your working life and your free life. So it's kind of stuff like that. It is kind of, um, you know, like I said, I'm not saying that the only way to do these things is to either move to the countryside, countryside or, or, to, or, or get a dog. But the point is you kind of have to take some quite intentional and not necessarily drastic action, but intentional action. Um, if you're serious about, um, about doing these things, you actually have to put the work in. It's, is I guess, I guess it's kind of not dissimilar to uh, this big idea that James Clear talks about, which is that um, the the identity, the identity habit. If you want to form a habit, you need to form form an identity around it. So, okay, I want to be a person who works less. So, think to myself at five p.m. What would a person who worked less do at this point? Would they continue to send emails or do whatever, or would they maybe close their laptop and go for a walk? Um, it's that kind of thing. It's sort of thinking. Like I said, it's being intentional about this stuff. Um, and yeah, for me, it was actually taking some quite drastic um, changes and making some quite drastic changes in my lifestyle. Mm. Yeah, it's a. Uh... It's a really interesting tension, I think, sort of playing with all of these different things. Definitely getting yourself into the environment where you are around things that are happening that you want to do. So, for instance, I actually found not the opposite, but kind of a little bit the opposite, that the pace of life in Newcastle was too slow for me. So Mm. um, going to Austin, where it's super social, there's things happening all the time, there's events on, everybody's training or going shooting or going south by southwest or some sort of meditation retreat there's always things to do so again you know i'm in a house surrounded by the type of food that i want to eat i'm in a city surrounded by the type of activities that i want to do it's very difficult to do the sort of thing that you want to do if there's no one around you doing it so yeah i think basically environment design but just on a 
a, an entire sort of lifestyle scale socially what are the sort of people that you're around doing yeah that's um it'll be interesting it'll be interesting to see what happens the progress of remote work this increasing dissatisfaction with living for work um mm. i think for some people um the realization that you can get to your freedom number whatever you feel like in terms of your annual income and then stopping as opposed to being the boss bitch or the Gary V hustle and grind guy and this is something I, I really need to read a little bit more about it but it's something I'm really passionate about saying look if you have a low level of materialism if you can be optimally happy at 100 grand a year you have a competitive advantage over people who can't get to that level of happiness until they hit 10 mil like that that is genuinely the same as having a fast metabolism look that person needs to be on 1800 calories mm. a day in order to cut you can cut on 2400 calories you can do less work and get the same outcome that you want but culture at the moment it's so uncool to talk about rest when you're done you know rest when you're done or you you don't need to push yourself beyond where you need to go I think in the micro, that makes a ton of sense. You want to be competitive. You want to get as much out of yourself as you can. But when it comes to doing things that are in service of other things, like working in service of money or working in service of freedom, I, I don't think that that's true. I think that you get yourself to the stage where you're comfortable and then you start to lean further and further and further into what would I do with my time if I had as much time as I could? And that's Morgan Housel's psychology of money. It says having wealth is the ability to do what you want, when you want, with who you want, for as long as you want, and no one can tell you otherwise. That's it. So, yeah, I'm hoping it, this philosophy actually comes out a little bit more. Just san Marxism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's always the sticking point, right? Is that... <laughs> um, I mean, there's so much to kind of unpack there. It's really interesting. So a couple of things I'll just say quickly is, first of all, um, you know, I want to be a person who just only is intrinsically motivated and I have my own definition of success and I want to tune out everything else, but I can't, you know, I do also like being able to, I don't, I want to be able to go to the party and say, oh, you know, I do, I, I do X and people instantly understand what that is. It's quite t tedious and quite frustrating when you go somewhere and you're talking to someone and you're explaining to them that you've got this newsletter and it's got, you know, 15,000 subscribers or whatever. Um, and they're just looking at you and that, you know, like I'm, I, I, um, I have a, I have a membership on my newsletter, a subscription thing. Like I actually make money directly through the newsletter and people, I, people eyes are kind of either glazing over or they just can't compute and they, they don't understand what it is. And it's, um, I do sometimes have those moments where I wish I could just say, you know, I'm a lawyer or I am a journalist who has a staff job at the New York times or whatever. Um, because actually having those traditional external markers of success is just easier to talk about. Um, so it would be, I would be lying if I said that I've got this whole thing licked and that I do my own thing and I don't care what anyone thinks and all of that because of, of course I do, I'm human. Um, so there's kind of that element to it. And then there's another element to it, which is specifically on the money side. And as you say, kind of talking about wealth is that so many of us 
don't know because again it's not something that was you know financial literacy and kind of even sort of financial education is something that is just not taught as standard in schools and even just this kind of understanding the difference between wealth and income and that your salary how much you're paid as a salary isn't actually that that's not there's obviously a part of but it's not the whole indicator of your wealth and you, all of these kind of com concepts which you know the difference between net wealth net worth and um income and all of these things is just stuff that not enough of us talk about or know about um and so when we're thinking of when we talk about building wealth there's this kind of like it's it's not okay to say that that you know i'm out here trying to build my wealth because that just it what people hear is i'm out here just trying to make as much money as possible and i just i'm i just want to be rich um and that has you know it has its own kind of it has a certain it has a it has a negative connotation um but actually wealth building can be um it can be really powerful. Um, it's freedom building. Wealth building yeah. is freedom building. Yeah. So it's it's one of those things that it's there's not enough nuance to the conversation around these things, and it's hard to kind of have the conversation around these things. Um, again, going back to this anti-work thing, um, one of the rules in the forum is you just cannot talk about CEOs because. Um, more so from this kind of original core group of people, um, again, because it's rooted in um, Marxism and anarchism, there is this fundamental belief that any CEO is still um, profiting off the labor of the workers. And so therefore, it's just not possible for them. You know, there's no such thing as benevolent. Yeah, and there's no such thing as benevolent capitalism, um, which is... I can, I totally see where that view comes from. Um, and you know, what, what we're talking about in that respect is on m such a massive level. But when we're talking about kind of, you know, CEOs of tiny companies or CEOs of companies of one, um, building wealth and redistributing it, that's, you know, it's possible. It, it's something that I kind of, I even think about just for my own, for my, just like in my own little world is, um, so if when I work with other creatives, when I collaborate on projects, increasingly I'm trying to do so on a profit sharing basis rather than paying another, if I'm working with another freelancer, increasingly I try to avoid just paying them a flat fee and just share the profit because that to me sounds, seems fairer. Um, and wouldn't it be great if that worked on a, on a, macro level um i doubt that me doing that is going to is going to influence that but at least in my own little orbit that's something that that's my little action so this is just a really long-winded way of saying that um when there is a big element to all of the productivity discussion which centers around wealth and and money and not enough of that is talked about. And it's a really important conversation to have and a really big part of it. Because to a large extent, the more resources you have and the um, the wealthier you are, the more productive you can be. Um, because just for simple reasons of you can either outsource stuff or you're not worrying about that financial burden. Um, 
one of your earlier questions when you were asking me, you know, kind of like how to, how do you, you know, about being more creative, um, something that I think there is a direct correlation between is when my finances are in a good place, I feel I, I can, I get more done. I can, I feel more creative. I feel more productive because I'm not, I don't have that. There's no worry at the back of my head of like, Oh my God, how am I, you know, I need to come up with an idea so that I can, um, pay my bills. Um, you know, you, that heat gets taken off. Um, so anyway, that's a very potted kind of, um, take on it. But I do think there's a really big chunk of this productivity conversation that directly relates to money. I agree. I think that the, how would you say, negative view of wealth acquisition isn't really helping anybody. Um, what the Beyond Burger work crowd want to do is they want people to be able to live the sort of life that they want uh, unencumbered from uh, the vicissitudes of doing work, but they don't realize that you can actually achieve that through work. And there will inevitably be a little bit of um, resentment towards the people that do. You know, if you're able to find your freedom number by going freelance or by working within a company and doing whatever, investing smartly, uh, that's the same outcome. You've managed to get the same outcome. But anyway, uh, people need to go and subscribe to your Substack. Your newsletter is dope. I really like it. It's at the intersection of all of the things that bounce around inside of my head to do with modern productivity and stuff like that. Where should people go? They want to sign up to that or check out the other things that you do. Um, so my Substack is at, um, it's such a long, I've got such a long name because I have a long, long, my name is long, but it's anacodgerado.substack.com. But the best place people can find me is on Twitter. It's at anacod and, um, everything basically is linked from there. So, but there is no other Anna Cogerado in the world. So if you Google me, you find all my stuff. Nice. Thanks, Anna. Thanks very much. This has been great.